calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter, one of the hosts of the Digital Folklore podcast, and this is Digital Folklore Unplugged. Unplugged editions are where we ditch all the fancy production and the story elements and bring you the raw or only slightly edited interviews with our folklore experts. On today's episode, my co-host Mason and I got to speak with Dr. Gina Jorgensen. I'm Dr. Gina Jorgensen. I am a lecturer at Butler University, and with a PhD in folklore, I study all sorts of human interactions around tradition, storytelling, and identity. We touch on several key themes in this interview, everything from the multidisciplinary nature of folklore studies to the value of studying folklore, the dark side of folklore and how it can be weaponized, and a whole lot more. Okay. Let's get unplugged. For you, what was your path into folklore as like a lifelong you know, thing that you spend all your time thinking about and working towards? So I was a bookworm as a child. I read pretty much everything I could get my hands on. And some of my favorite things to read were these really thick world book of folktales, world book of mythology, those kinds of things as well as a lot of fairy tales and fantasy and fairy tale fantasy retellings, lots of things in that vein. So that was my first love. And I went to UC Berkeley as an undergraduate thinking, all right, I want to be a writer. I'll get a day job. I'll probably teach history or something. I'd had a really influential history teacher in high school. So I'm probably going to major in history and then do whatever I want on the side. But my first semester at Berkeley, I took four classes. I took an intro to cultural anthropology, intro to linguistics, intro to religious studies, and a freshman seminar on fairy tales. And by the end of that, I was like, I want all these things combined as one thing forever. And it turns out that's kind of what folklore is. And then I went on to discover that Berkeley had a major folklorist, Alan Dundas, working there. And so he became my mentor and took a bunch of classes with him, including graduate classes while I was an undergrad. And I just sort of got bit by the folklore bug and decided that this is the most interesting thing in the world, because by studying folklore, I'm studying 
what people actually care about, what people actually do in their spare time, not under compulsion from capitalism or religion or their jobs necessarily. There can be social pressures involved in folklore. And so because folklore exists in all time periods and all regions of the world and all groups of people, also, I'll never be bored. I will never run out of stuff to study. So I just sort of decided uh, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I better go get the PhD. Oh, looks like my main option is Indiana University. And so as a California girl, this led to a little bit of culture shock, which was itself an interesting thing from this perspective. And I've just been studying folklore ever since. Super cool. That gets into something. So you mentioned, um, of course, there's a diversity of ideas that you get to study. And um, looking at the things that people are naturally producing on their own rather than being coerced into producing by whatever governmental entities or economic pressures. Well, I guess folklore can be come out of economic pressure as well. But as you think about this, do you see folklore in some ways as a, a group of people leaving behind true representations of themselves rather than what is expected by Entity X? To some degree, yes. So I would personally stick away from, I would stay away from phrasing like true representations or accurate or authentic maybe because it, it just depends on how you're measuring things. But folklore is something that is often done by the people for themselves. So we we have terminology like folk group, meaning a group of people who have some uniting factor in common, whether it's small or large. So a folk group might be as big as a nationality, an ethnicity, people who share a language, people who share a religion. A folk group might be as small as a family, people who have the same hobby, people who have the same very small workplace and everything in between. So this idea of folk group is that you have something in common, but that something leads to shared values and shared experiences and as a result of that, shared folklore. So when people within a folk group are performing folklore or maintaining and sharing folklore with each other, yeah, it, it often is for insiders of that group. It's not always for outsiders. So the stuff that we make and do for ourselves within small groups oftentimes is a very accurate representation of our values and how we see ourselves. But then there's also what we call differential folklore, which is folklore that we have about them or those other people, which can be anything from uh, the rivalries in a neighborhood or in a career. Uh, Lots of jokes, for example, are about one nationality making fun of another nationality. There's a lot of examples of those. So folklore reflects identity on any number of levels. And again, oftentimes it is closer to the source. It is often less um, mediated than other types of culture. So for example, Uh, I do not have the budget or the connections to make a multi-million dollar blockbuster movie that millions around the people around the world will see. I just, I don't have that capability. That is not going to happen in my lifetime. But I can reach people around me with a really well thought out joke or personal narrative or, or something along those lines. So it is partly a question of scale and I have to go through fewer steps to relay folklore to the people who are immediately in my spheres. So whether that makes it more Authentic is sort of another question because authenticity is often a social construct at some level as well, but it is often less mediated by others. Yeah, that's super insightful. Really well put. When you consider the study of folklore, let's say somebody is kind of looking, standing on the outside looking in at folklore and 
they don't understand the value of it as an academic discipline or as a life pursuit. What would you say the the true value of studying folklore and being able to uh, to do research around it and speak conversantly about folklore as a concept is? Yeah, I'd say there's a lot of value. I'd, I'd class it primarily at two levels to communicate to people. First is no matter what you enjoy in life, it is probably influenced by folklore on some level. If you're a foodie, well, what do you think people were doing before we could get mass market preserved foods and order foods? It was recipes in your family that were passed down folklorically. What did we do before refrigeration? It was preserving things, whether by canning or putting things in a cellar. That all came from folklore. That is traditionally a passed along informal modes of knowledge, right? Um, so no matter what you enjoy, you know, if you like Marvel movies, uh, a lot of those stories connect to fairy tales, legends, and myths. So again, no matter what you like as a person, as a hobbyist, as someone who's into creative things, I guarantee you there's a connection to folklore somehow. So that would be my first bid for value. My second bid for value is more scholarly in nature, and it's more about how humans interact with each other in the world. So I think of folklore as social glue because we have these folk groups or these, you know, identity-related groups that we all get sorted into. It's kind of like a sorting hat, but we're all wearing multiple hats at the same time. You know, there's then the nationality that you are associated with, perhaps you have a religion, um, maybe there's some family folklore that you have, maybe in your career, there's a set of insider knowledge and jokes and things like that, that kind of folklore. So by looking at someone's multiple identities or folk groups, we can also start to see how people affiliate with one another and how we learn to um, communicate and share our value systems and things of that nature. So on a more serious note, folklore can not only be social glue and sort of a positive, constructive way, but folklore can be the the dark side of that as well. Folklore is also found in stereotypes and moral panics and urban legends and conspiracy theories and rumors, things of that nature that create barriers between self and other that delineate we are the good protected class. Those people are out to get us. So that's the, that's very much the dark side of folklore is that it can maintain and construct social identities and groups. It can also tear those down and create villains that then sometimes face real world consequences for being othered. So by studying folklore, we can tap into these processes, how they're happening, when and where, and maybe intervene. So that is the most amazing answer we've gotten for that question so far. <laughs> so, yeah. Because it goes so deep into that. And then a lot of the social issues that are plaguing the world today, and I guess have always plagued the world, but we see it at a different scale than we ever have. We've skirted an issue of definition up until now. So I do want to go ahead and get from your perspective, what is a workable definition for folklore? And then I think we'll go into a little bit more meat, but um, just so that we have multiple people also giving definitions and can show the diversity of ways that people try to classify what folklore is, I think that'd be valuable. And if possible, like I know that a lot of the people who will be tuning in just immediately associate old stories or like specifically like just fairy tales or something like that with folklore. So like, how do you lure someone into the pool who only knows the word and not what it actually represents. Well, and I, I do, I know you have a passion around fairy tales as well. So I want, I want to give you a chance in just a bit also to go really deep into the significance of fairy tales and what they've played over, you know, the, the course of human history and the, um, you know, the, the value that they bring too. So it's not just the Disneyification of, of things, but the 
kind of the the roots of that and what social issues they're trying to to drive at. Um, and we can do the same for contemporary legends and other areas as well. But yeah, let's let's start with a kind of a base level definition and then work from there. I really like the definition that my colleague Lynn McNeil gives of folklore in her book Folklore Rules. Folklore is informally transmitted traditional culture. And we do have to kind of break those parts down a little bit as well. So culture is everything that we have to know and learn and understand to thrive in a society and know its unspoken rules. A couple of important facets of culture. Culture is transmitted rather than inherited. Nobody is born with culture. Nobody pops out of the womb knowing what's polite versus what's impolite. Culture is not in our genes. It is something we learn through human interaction from the moment we are brought into this world. So culture is transmitted. Culture is learned. Culture is shared. Culture is also not universal. Culture is something, again, that is going to be really shaped by historical and geographical factors, depending on where and when you are in the world. So with those ideas in mind about culture, if we think that culture is this whole big web of knowledge, it includes how we learn things about our economy and about technology and, and so many different kinds of things. And culture is also maintained and enforced in different ways. At least in the modern West, we have a number of institutions that maintain culture. We have the government, we have education, we have medicine, we have the criminal justice system, all of these things that are responsible for enforcing norms and rules. Now, in contrast to all of that, folklore is informal. Folklore is less institutional. If you decide to break the law for some reason, there might be severe consequences for that. If you tell a joke badly, there's maybe not severe consequences for that. I don't know. I mean, maybe you just revealed that you're a bigot and that does have some consequences for you, but you're not going to land in jail for telling a joke the wrong way or messing up a proverb or whatever. So when we say that folklore is informally transmitted traditional culture, we're saying folklore is a very important part of culture, but it's not transmitted and maintained by institutions the same way that education is, the same way that medicine is, the same way that the law is. So folklore is informal. That's what that means. We also mean that folklore is traditional as in it is passed along intentionally rather than something that is completely new every single time. So tradition often has this connotation of being centuries old or millennia old, and that is just not true. Traditions can be new, traditions can be emergent, but what traditions do have is some form of continuity or stability over time. You can, you can point at dots on a line at different texts that we have collected and say, that and that and that, look at that, those things are really similar, those things are in the same type of thing. Thing. They're the same genre, perhaps. They're the same kind of urban legend or holiday custom or whatever. So when we say that folklore is traditional, we really just mean it's been passed along for some period of time and we have documented that. So my, my favorite definition in folklore is informally transmitted traditional culture. I also like a couple other definitions. Um, Dan Benamos says artistic communication in small groups. So again, it's accessing that idea of groups of people who share something, share an identity, share values, share, again, some, some kind of linking factor. And the fact that it's artistic communication means, again, it's, it's marked off from other types of culture. It's marked off from other types of interaction. And we say instead, aha, when you say a priest and a rabbi walk into a bar, I am signaling with this linguistic framing I'm not just going to tell you any old anecdote. This, this one is special. This one is a joke. This is going to be funny. 
Or if I say once upon a time, again, there's a marker or a formula that says we are shifting out of everyday conversation into something like magical, like a different realm. One important note that I like to include along with these thoughts on what folklore is, is that none of these definitions include anything about truth value. The definition of folklore does not hinge on whether it's true or not. It hinges on how it's transmitted. The fact that it's more face-to-face and peer-to-peer than top-down forms of culture like you have to have a lot of money to make a movie or you have to have a literary agent to publish a novel through traditional press and so on. There's very little in the way of gatekeeping or institutional barriers with folklore. Now, there's some. There's, There's always going to be some because the audience for a lot of folklore is people just like us in our groups. If you get a reputation of cooking a really bad Thanksgiving dinner, people aren't going to want to come to your house for Thanksgiving anymore. So, so there are standards. There is a community presence. There is community evaluation, but there's not straight up gatekeeping like Hollywood gatekeeps who can release movies and things of that nature. Um, and going back to the truth value thing, some genres of folklore are inherently marked off as true or untrue just by way of what the genre is. So when I say once upon a time, I'm keying you to expect a fairy tale. Fairy tales are fictional formulaic narratives about magic and transformation and all that good stuff, right? So you know we're not speaking of something that's true, but there might be emotional truths or emotional resonances or truths about the family or the self or something like that. But it's not literally, like Cinderella is not a real person. We all kind of understand that. And in contrast, some kinds of folklore might actually be true. Certain forms of folk medicine have been documented to work. And, but we call it folk medicine because it's transmitted by the folk rather than by a doctor's prescription. So, again, calling something folklore is more about how it is transmitted than what the content of it is actually is. And so, this is part of how we can link really disparate genres of folklore. Like, like what does it actually have in common when I say quilting is a kind of folklore? Fairy tales are a kind of folklore. Folk medicine is a kind of folklore. These things look drastically different from one another. Like, you know, quilting is a material thing that exists in the world that's made of fabric. Fairy tales are verbal artistry with lots of magic in them and and, and so on. So even the genres of folklore, different examples of folklore might look very different than one another. What links them and what makes them all folklore is that they are transmitted in these informal ways and they are tapping into tradition every time they are told. Yeah, I I love that. I think that some people trip over that word traditional whenever they see that definition and they do think generational or hundreds of years when it really is could even be really short iterations on a cat meme or something over the period of days. Yes, and exactly. So the existence of Internet folklore is is very uh, short and emergent, but it's there. You know, I was collecting uh, memes during the 2016 presidential election cycle here in the U.S., showing Biden as a trickster figure when, you know, then Vice President Biden was going to vacate the White House for then incoming President Trump. And it showed, in these memes showed Biden doing things like stuffing shrimp shells in the White House curtain rods and setting the um, the HBO and whatever else TV, all, all of it to be in Spanish and all this stuff, you know, like classic trickster things. Those were very new. A lot of them emerged within the, within the course of like a handful of days. But you look at them and they're all clearly linked to one another by the idea of Biden as a trickster figure. And yeah, it's it's a recent tradition. And that, that's another important thing, I think, about the definition of folklore is relevance. So because folklore is not a type of culture that is maintained by institutions, if it ceases to be relevant to people's lives, it dies. 
it just dies. It just goes away. People might preserve it for, for funsies, for nostalgia. But, uh, you know, we're not really hearing challenger jokes anymore. So disaster jokes and joke cycles, political joke cycles are a great example of this. Uh, no one is telling Dan Quayle jokes anymore. And I know I just dated myself by saying that, <laughs> but it's not relevant. So they just kind of drop off the radar. And that's, again, that's because they're folklore. Folklore must be relevant to be maintained. I wonder if there's a way to clarify, because I think it, because it's so broad and can cover so many things, people might get tripped up on like what isn't folklore. And like, it's obvious that top-down media and things like that is not folklore. But where is the delineation, I guess, between just any communication and what is folklore? Is it is it in that caching of subtext and meaning that is understood unspokenly or? Yes, good question. So I tend to use two criteria to determine if something is folklore, multiple existence and variation. So you need to document something existing in more than one time and place to have multiple existence. And this uh, goes back to tradition, right? Tradition is establishing continuity and stability of a thing existing. So if somebody tells me a really intriguing story, but that's the only version of it in existence, that's probably not folklore, right? No, folklore needs to be transmitted within and by a folk group. So I need to see some kind of traditional existence, even if it's a very small group of people with this particular item of folklore. If it only exists in one place ever told by one person, it may not be folklore. So it, it just failed the multiple existence test. Variation is the other test. So tradition and variation are kind of twin or pair concepts in folklore. So tradition is continuity and variation is novelty. And we see this because, you know, somebody could tell a joke and I could retell the same joke and you'd be like, okay, that's recognizably the same joke. The priest and the rabbi walked into the bar, whatever, whatever. But I can mix up the words and still have the same meaning and hopefully still hit the punchline. There's no joke police coming to get you if you use two different adverbs in your joke right? So tradition and variation mean that you are conveying the same idea or the same traditional side of things, while variation gives you the freedom to put your own spin on it. And again, the community will be the judge of this. Maybe you told a good version of the joke. Maybe you told a bad version of the joke. I don't know. And we see this especially differentiating folklore from pop culture and the mass media, because for the most part, once a movie has been filmed, it is the same text. It doesn't matter whether I see it in the movie theater or I watch it on Netflix or some other streaming service. I'm watching frame for frame the same exact thing that everyone else is. Now, you know, there's a handful of exceptions, you know, director's cut, 20-year, retroactive, whatever, whatever. We get those sometimes. Um, same thing with if you are publishing a newspaper article or a novel or something like that. No matter where you read it, read it on your Kindle, read it on a website, read it in print, you're probably reading the same word-for-word -word text literally, no matter which medium you're seeing it in. So those fail the variation test, right? So it is the same static text. There's no room to put your own spin on it. It has been mediated by gatekeepers rather than by the folk. And of course, we do get interesting sort of um, gray area case studies like fan fiction, which is where someone takes a pop culture text and says, well, I think so-and-so should have actually got together with this other character instead, and then they write it or do whatever. So that is more participatory. That is more people putting their own variation on something that has been composed by someone else. So there are always going to be a couple of gray areas, I guess. Culture is inherently kind of messy, and we like to have categories in academic studies, but it doesn't always pan out to the real world. But for the most part, if you are just sort of new to the study of folklore, you're like, wow, is everything folklore? The answer is probably no. Look for multiple existence and look for variation. And maybe you have found a true edge case, in which case 
that's pretty interesting. But we, we do have, you know, standards for what is considered folklore. Extremely good. Those, those two tools to use for that. That's thank you. That was perfect. More of our interview with Dr. Gina Jorgensen after this. Hey, listeners, if you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And your membership lets you get into premium format shows like IMAX and 4DX at a reduced cost. Plus, you'll save 10% on all non-alcoholic concessions. Regal Unlimited, it's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com unlimited. And be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey ya, Mason here. And I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I have two cats, two big old boys named Chester and Cinders, and I love them both very much. But I didn't grow up with cats, and I've never suffered from general allergies like pollen, so it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that I was allergic to them. No joke, when I started working from home, I would say things like, wow, I feel like I'm losing my voice every day, or isn't it weird, I can't breathe through my nose for some reason. Ultimately, it was my partner who said, that really sounds like allergies, and long story short, now I take a Claritin every day. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Welcome back. So then one of the the fun things, I guess, to contemplate is, and I've heard people talk about this, so I think I know your answer as well, is the first iteration of something, the, the founding of that, you know, that first telling of that joke or the first time somebody said once upon a time, is that considered folklore or is it only after there's significant variation and pattern establishment? It's an interesting question, but I don't know if it's an answerable question. Because so much of folklore comes from from oral tradition that unless somebody has a time machine, we don't know when the first instance of something was. We can only document it after the fact and after it's become popular. So I I, I mean, in, in the Internet age, yes, we might actually be able to pin down a first iteration of some kind of new text or new genre that, that could definitely happen. So whether that first one counts as folklore or not, um, I I don't know. I'm not sure what I think about that because I, I work so much on fairy tales and genres, which is like, that is just lost to the mist of time. Sorry. I, I just, I've gotten out of the habit of thinking about it. I, I know. So some of my colleagues study um, Slenderman and that one, there is a documented history of it appearing on creepypasta forums and then disseminating through various folkloric uh, channels. So I would probably uh, want to pause this conversation and go look up what they've written about Slenderman. But but yeah, my, my impression is that you would you would look at that first text as something that is definitely interesting and definitely influential, and then we would start to talk about it as folklore as it spread. 
that's the consensus that that I've seen too. Like, it's, and if you go back to something as early as, um, or as easily to create a beginning of and to potentially trace it, it's like a meme. First time that meme shows up, it's considered a founder's meme, and then after that, only once there's significant variation, does it become memed the way that we think about it in in folklore. So it's an interesting chicken and egg type of thing to to toss around in our heads. I didn't know if we wanted to just quickly hit like how did the internet change folklore but totally up to you yeah i can i can try to take a stab at that one i think the internet changed folklore in a handful of ways it made communication more rapid and accessible for larger numbers of people than ever before in some ways so it was a game changer um there are a number of small folk groups that existed prior to the internet that still exist but you know we would have to find fellow science fiction fans and other little niche groups through like newsletters and physically mailing out things to try to find your people and going to little conventions and gatherings and so on. So if you think about all of these niche hobby groups that, you know, do share folklore and are a folk group, suddenly you meet thousands of people worldwide and you can just all instantaneously be in touch with each other. So I would say one significant thing the internet has done is allowed folk groups to more rapidly reach each other and establish shared identity and values and create new shared folklore. So you know, I, I guarantee you for any niche hobby group or whatever, they've now got a Reddit page, they've got a Facebook page, they've got a whatever, they, they're on Twitter, they're sharing and making memes. So that, that's that been really interesting to observe. There are a number of folk groups that are inherently as well kind of isolated, um, either because the groups uh, themselves are very stigmatized. So people who are into uh, more marginalized aspects of things such as um, LGBTQ identities, kink identities, non-monogamous identities, and so on. Um, it's easier to find each other using pseudonyms on the internet now, as well as people who are isolated for just more logistics reasons, like uh, people who are disabled or perhaps immunocompromised. So the internet has been a major source of community and connection for a lot of these folk groups. That's been pretty notable. The advance in technology sort of adjacent to the internet as well has, I think, facilitated the creation of folklore. So, you know, could I draw a cat meme? I don't know. <laughs> I could try. It wouldn't look too good. I'm not an artist. Um, but I can use, a, you know, a click of something on a website a few clicks later and I've got a cat meme and it's been recaptioned the way I want it or, you know, the, the Morpheus matrix meme or whatever. So in terms of making tools accessible to people, the sort of adjacent to the internet technologies, um, the fact that you can do voice recordings now, the fact that you can create a video using your phone rather than need to like go out and buy a camcorder. So I think that there are a lot of ways in which the internet and its adjacent technologies have revolutionized the making and sharing of folklore and the connection of folk groups. The adjacent technologies and tools was not something that had occurred to me. Seems obvious in retrospect, but that that's really neat. So then um, for you, what are your favorite types of folklore to study or to speak about? I've been into fairy tales since day one, so that's definitely one of my favorites. I enjoy the study of fairy tales in part because they are one of the sort of legacy folklore examples. Um, a lot of people immediately jump to fairy tales when they're trying to think, what is folklore? Like, you know, unicorns, Greek mythology, and uh, fairy tales. So I, I do kind of have that association going for me, for me when I talk about fairy tales. I enjoy them because on the one hand, they are very trivialized and so you know, it's like oh well that's just fairy tales you know the modern day oh that's just disney crap or that's just whatever it's very easily dismissed even as it's a very lucrative market for the right people to be producing certain things right now and in the past as well in the past maybe 
four or five hundred years of solid fairy tale history that we have documented, fairy tales have largely been by and for adults rather than for children, which is, again, a shift away from the um, current beliefs about them. And as such, fairy tales have always been used to have conversations about power and identity and gender and things of that nature. So that makes them really interesting to me as well. So yeah, I've, I've always been into fairy tales. It's a very rich field of study. I could talk fairy tales all day. I also enjoy urban legends or contemporary legends, as we tend to call them. Those also have a lot of good like recognition value among the general public. And they also connect very closely to people's fears and anxieties in the, the modern day. So I find them really interesting for that. I enjoy personal narrative, which is one of those sort of almost an edge case of folklore genres because we talk about folklore as informally transmitted traditional culture, as needing to show multiple existence and variation. But personal narratives are very personal. Like it's, it's you know, a person telling their life story. Uh, you know, this is when I graduated from college and I went to Europe for the first time at Bala. So it's like first person narratives about your life experiences. They're traditional to you. <laughs> They're going to have variation as you retell them over the course of your lifetime, but they're not going to have the same widespread existence and performance as something like a fairy tale or an urban legend. But they're still interesting to folklorists because even the way that we conceptualize storytelling varies by culture. And so the types of personal narrative that you tell is going to be, on the one hand, very unique to you, but also very patterned by the culture and the time period that you live in. So for me growing up in the U.S. in the 80s and 90s and so on, a lot of my peers have personal narratives about uh, traveling abroad for the first time or what, what it was like to go to college and things like that. Whereas an older or younger generation, they might have slightly different personal narratives, um, emphasizing the different stages of life and identity that they went through. So that's another one I like. Um, I enjoy jokes. Those are often also very recognizable to the general public. Ironically, I am bad at telling jokes. I mess up the punchline half the time. That just makes it funnier, in my opinion. But jokes also highlight these tensions between different identities. Um, jokes can, you know, they can punch up or they can punch down. And what kind of joke you like might say something about you. So I, I tend to enjoy those. Um, I like body art. I like folk dance. These are things that I I'm involved in in my personal life. I mean, everyone is involved in body art because everybody makes choices about what to put on your body because we don't live in a nudist society. And the things that we wear show lots of aspects of our identity. So those are genres that I enjoy. And then probably the last one I enjoy that I've deliberately not done a lot of scholarship on is traditional foods and foodways because I decided at some point that I am not going to monetize every single thing I enjoy. Um, <laughs> but as someone who uh, comes from a robust line of family cooks and also enjoys cooking myself, this is something that if you really want to dig into it, you will find so many aspects of culture, history, gender, religion, and so on, just in the daily foods we eat and prepare. So I find that one really fascinating as well. So I wonder with things like fairy tales and contemporary legends and maybe even jokes to an extent as well. There is this aspect of of uh, a central truth that is often either being hidden or being highlighted in those types of things. Um, can you talk about how that tends to to work um, and maybe the significance of that? You know, rather than saying, "Oh, that's just an urban legend" or oh, "That's just a fairy tale," there's usually something that we can find in there that's that's pretty interesting and maybe significant culturally. 
Yeah, I, I think it, the phrasing you use, like, oh, that's just a fairy tale or just an urban legend. Oh, that's just folklore. That, that's interesting to me because, again, in our scholarly definition of folklore, whether it's true or not really has no bearing on whether we consider it to be transmitted as folklore. But yeah, when I think about why these genres are transmitted and what sort of kernel of truth they might have in them, I think we need to aggregate a lot of texts from kind of a similar time period or region of the world so that we can start to connect the text to the context. So again, folklore never exists in a vacuum. It's always told by specific people for specific reasons, and they may or may not be able to articulate those reasons. A lot of people aren't necessarily trained to elaborate on why we do things sort of almost by reflex. But the example would be that in a lot of the earliest contemporary legends that were first starting to be collected in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, a lot of them revolved around cars and inside versus outside the city. So I'm thinking of ones like The Hook, where, you know, this boy and girl are out, you know, driving around and making out in a car or whatever, and the radio is on, tells you how old it is. And um, is, you know, the report of a crazy serial killer who escaped from the insane asylum with a hook for a hand, blah, blah, blah. The girl gets scared and wants to go home. Uh, the boy finally relents and drives her home and he gets out and walks around the side of the car to open her door. Again, this is an older story. Embedded in the car door handle is a hook. And there's a lot of variations on that one. Sometimes they stay, but he gets out to go look for the, the mysterious sound. And then, you know, he's killed. There's all this stuff going on. But given when these were sort of told and collected in aggregate, you know, 60s, 70s and so on, these are reflecting a, a kernel of social truth or a social anxiety around sex, around teenagers becoming adults around social outsiders and things of that nature. So that, that's one of the things that I enjoy kind of looking at is how these stories were connected to their social context. Like what were the motifs or elements that you're starting to see reflected in the storytelling for the first time? And then what significance would that have had to the tellers? Well, and it, it sounds like there are these clusters of uh, maybe reasons why we can see some of these emerge. And in the fairy tale world, you have like the ATU system to categorize a lot of those thematically. Are you aware of anything in the urban legend realm that is creating that kind of categorization? Well, for the more traditional migratory legends that emerged in Europe from the Middle Ages and onward, we have the Migratory Legend Index, I believe by Scandinavian scholar Radar Christensen, I believe. Uh, I do not have a copy of that. But those are from um, older, more like supernatural legends. So saints legends, encounters with the fairies, encounters with uh, witches and werewolves and vampires and so on. So those are used a lot on, in European legend studies, but it has not, to my knowledge, been updated to include the contemporary legends. I somehow actually have not heard migratory legends, or like I've not heard that, that phrasing. Well, and the, the interesting thing about migratory legends is that You'll see, again, kind of like the same story passed around, but with the serial numbers shaved off. So in a lot of Swedish and Norwegian and Danish legends about encounters with a witch or something, the witch is Finnish. <laughs> but then you go to Finland and the witch is like a Laplander. <laughs> so it's the same plot. You can, you can see the tradition like, oh, this is basically the same thing being retold. But then who they make, the, the villain or the outsider figure will vary depending on which culture it's landed in at the moment. Gotcha. Yeah. It's just a different coat of paint based on, on, on where it has migrated to. Yep. That is, that is really interesting. After the break, the conclusion of our interview with Dr. Gina Jorgensen. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working. 
eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. I think I, I think something that interests me too is the folklore on like a very small scale, like gossip, I guess, or like those those very small interpersonal things, or like family folklore, and also like you briefly touched on food, uh, food and food traditions and things like that are all areas that I don't know too much about. Yeah, I know. Like, and with with Hanukkah coming up as well. So uh, my family is Jewish on my mom's side. So when we think of small things like you know family folklore and holidays and traditional foods and so on. That That's a really interesting area where you can see, again, a, a variety of factors emerging. So my family were more secular Jewish. And so um, Hanukkah is really like, well, is will everyone be in the same state at the time? You know, I live in Indiana. My family's mostly in California. So our celebrations have really become um, toggled around people's schedules and things like that and travel, which again would be an innovation upon the tradition of back when people would maybe not stray as far from their hometown things like that. We will make latkes. We will do a lot of the traditional foods. But at the same time, you know, we don't keep kosher. So that's a variation. That's a shift away from the um, modes in which certain people are really going to be more tied to the tradition. So um, one of the, again, one of the case studies for food ways is looking at how people's religion influences their food choices. So for a lot of people who have religious food restrictions, Sometimes it's something you observe at home, but not while you're out. Sometimes it's a 24-7 thing. Sometimes, you know, you you suddenly have a vegetarian in the family. You don't know how to handle that. So there are a lot of um, ways in which, again, like people's um, traditional ideas about food are going to encounter newer things. Like, what do we do when so-and-so is away at college and then they come back? What do we do when uh, somebody has a new food allergy? How do we accommodate these things? But a lot of our food traditions are are um, being impacted by newer technologies, again, to return to this idea of technology, refrigeration, pretty new in human history, right? The ability to preserve things, to mass market things, things of that nature. Um, another thing I'm interested in is home food preservation techniques, because again, like I don't need to make jam or pickles. I can go buy jam or pickles. But you see this big resurgence. I see it called sometimes um, cottage core where people are really into like, hey, I found grandma's old canning book. Let's give it a try. Um, and I view that as a desire to reconnect with one's heritage, um, especially here in the U.S. where so many, of, so many of us are some kind of 
white European mutt of some variety, like, oh, I'm, you know, one eighth German and one sixth this and something, something, something. I think a lot of white Americans feel disconnected from heritage history in the past. And food can be a pretty simple way of interacting with that and trying to sort of reconnect with that, as opposed to the more pernicious ways I sometimes see that encountered uh, happening with white supremacist groups wanting to appropriate folklore and um, some of the neo-pagan religions and things of that nature. And most academic folklorists are appalled and confused by this trend because folklore is ever-changing and it's connected to people's identities and heritages and things. And like, folklore isn't necessarily inherently racist, but if people are being racist, their folklore will reflect that. So to to want to recruit folklore into someone being racist or fascist or whatever, we're just like, why would you why are you coming into our playground to do this? Really? There weren't right. enough tools at your disposal to be a jerk to your fellow humans. So Yeah, that's a really, really good poignant point and timely. It's only going to be more over the next couple of years as we ramp up towards this next election cycle, I'm sure. And actually, if I can just keep talking briefly, um, it's like not an accident that I brought up my family's Hanukkah traditions with like, oh, yeah, by the way, folklore gets used by fascist groups Um, because there's a lot of anti-Semitic stereotypes and beliefs and legends and conspiracy theories circulating these days. And some of them are almost a thousand years old. So if you've heard of the blood libel legend, um, my mentor, Alan Dennis, wrote a, a book about the blood libel. And it's this medieval Christian belief. We have documentation going back as far as the 11th century AD, I believe. This totally false belief that Jewish people were using the blood of Christian babies in their rituals. Again, like, not true. Actually, there are a lot of taboos against consuming blood if you're Jewish. But it was circulating throughout medieval Christendom with such great frequency and severity that oftentimes Jews were like tried and executed as a result of this supposed crime. And it's just coming back. I mean, if you think about Marjorie Green Taylor's space laser, Jewish space lasers thing, what is that? But a reiteration of the legend, the Jews are stealing our future. Maybe not literally killing our babies, but they're stealing our future. So I am really disturbed by the amount of anti-Semitic beliefs and superstitions out there that I'm seeing and stereotypes. And that is, again, the, the dark side of folklore is if somebody tells a compelling enough story, people are gonna buy it. Yeah, and I think you can see that spread out a little bit, like in the, uh, the you know, the QAnon stuff that really exploded for a while. And like the, um, you did hear people talk about like eating babies and the the adrenochrome type of uh, stuff that they were talking about, you know, weird, weird uh, mythology that does seem to like all go back into this, um, you know, the, the core of that that you just talked about, which is over a thousand years old. It's crazy and disheartening to see that we keep doing the same thing again and have bring those same prejudices and biases. And it can also be sneaky. I, w- I found out the other day, uh, you know, people always joke about like lizard people or like Mark Zuckerberg is a lizard. I did not know that that had roots in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and stuff, but it totally just comes out of that. And that I was shocked. Yeah, it does. And like the other, the other thing is like the, the health food and wellness and spirituality pipeline to QAnon is also a thing. Right, which is so strange, but yeah. It was it was really weird when you saw like a, a 2016 to 2018, the whole Instagram influencer thing. A lot of that started pushing that way when it came to nutrition and uh, and health stuff when you would have figured that it would have leaned more towards the opposite side of the political spectrum, but filter bubbles are weird things too. And the other thing that like is, is where... Truth obviously doesn't matter in the terms of like the potency of a narrative and its ability to spread. Who is benefiting from 
continuing these and passing them along. It's it's usually people in positions of power or structures of power, right? But like, what? Why? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know. <laughs> I mean, I, I view this um, a, a lot of uh, dissent in America is is racially motivated. So I think back to Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, which you know documents how, like, in the actual Jim Crow days, you know, there was almost a coalition of you know the poor Southern whites with the newly freed Southern African Americans, and like they could have become a major voting bloc and actually pushed for a lot of change. A lot of like richer white people were like, oh, this is trouble. We better start sowing dissent. And like, you know, like the the seeds of white supremacy aren't about maintaining power and control and convincing people to vote against their best interests. You know, like another book is Dying of Whiteness by Dr. Jonathan Metzl. It's about um, three different case studies, public schools and education in Kansas, um, healthcare, the ACA exchanges in either Kentucky or Tennessee, and then gun control in a nearby state. And in all these states, it used to be like more like, oh, we had stricter gun control. We had really good public education. We're going to accept the ACA exchanges. But then like white people were convinced to vote against their own interests. So you'd see interview upon interview and stat upon stat about like, you know, white people who are disabled from from diabetes, from being veterans, whatever, saying, but I don't want no Obamacare, even though it would have substantially improved their lives. You know, you get looser gun control so that because white men have been fed the lie, you have to protect your family and your jobs from these dirty immigrants or whatever. And suddenly who's dying the most by gun homicide? White men by their own hands. Right. It's just it's. It's stunning just how much people can be fed these narratives, some of which have folkloric quantities to them, because like not of like a literal truth, but like of a value system that they have been taught is more important than anything, even their lives and their physical comfort and dignity. It's amazing. It's shocking. Well, it's propaganda, right? And then when it works well enough to get people to start spreading it on their own. Yeah. 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 Well, I was um, coming from a cybersecurity background and and having done a little bit of work in disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, I was really interested to see kind of the the intersection between studying that and studying folklore and you know some of the fake lore and a lot of you know the, these negative aspects of folklore that you talk about, which is basically you know. 4chan, I think, is a you know haven for, for that kind of stuff. Um, you see a lot of folklore spin up. It's just not great folklore that you want out in the world. Uh, it's, it's very, very damaging. Recently, I've been really interested in helping disseminate folklore information to the general public. This is because I've written almost 30 peer-reviewed academic articles and book chapters, and those tend to live behind paywalls where nobody can read them unless you happen to have a login at a university library. So I decided uh, about a year and a half ago to just gather a lot of my writings on folklore and write some new stuff and put it all together in a book called Folklore 101 aimed at the general public. And so I did that and I published it. Next up was Fairy Tales 101 to share a lot of my information about and passion for fairy tales. And my hope is that these books will just be really intriguing and a fun, easy read for anyone who's interested in these subjects. Um, you know, not everyone gets to take a class on folklore when they're in college or if they're you know, finding an online class to take over the summer or whatever. Um, so not everyone has access to this based on you know where they live in the country or the world. So my hope is that these books will at least be a starting point to get you part of the way there. And then, you know, there's a bunch of resources and so on so you can pursue further studies yourself. Yeah, I love as I was going through it, just how it doesn't feel intimidating to open the book. You know, the chapters are really short. The subject, um, you know, each of them are very, very well segmented. There's a good hierarchy that's there. Um, and so I love going through it because it has all the same material, but it doesn't feel like a weighty academic text. 
So you get the same knowledge, but without feeling intimidated by the material. And I thought that it takes a lot of talent to write that way and to structure things that way. So I really, really appreciated the work. Thank you. That was the hope. I've also been blogging for over a decade now because, again, I just I have a lot of thoughts. I need somewhere to put them. So I've always just kind of had this outlet outside of formal academic writing that's been sort of a, a companion for much of my time in, in academia. So I think that probably helps me with formulating my thoughts in a way that's not too jargony. Yes, really, the flow is great. It's really easy just to, to breeze through and feel like you're learning something, but not like you're struggling to. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you to Dr. Gina Jorgensen for spending time with us. Check out our show notes to find more information about Dr. Jorgensen. We'll also have links to her books, Folklore 101, Fairy Tales 101, and Sex Education 101, all of which are fun, accessible, and highly recommended. If you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for a future episode, you can reach us at hello at eighthlayermedia.com. Or if you'd like information about sponsoring an episode, a few episodes, or an entire season, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. Digital Folklore is created and produced by Eighth Layer Media. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.